Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec Gals. Welcome to this episode of RevRec Gals. Today, we are going to start talking about the allocation of the transaction price. Natasha, how about giving us some background on the purpose of calculating the SSP or standalone selling price? There's a few different ways that we use SSP or standalone selling price in revenue accounting. First and foremost, allocation. And so the real crux of the issue with allocation is we have a transaction price, we have contracts, we have performance obligations, we've identified everything we're providing in a contract. Now what? How do we determine how to take that contract amount or transaction price and divvy it up amongst the performance obligations or the promised goods and services? And when do you recognize it? SSP is essentially a tool or a a methodology that's used to go ahead and perform that allocation. That's the main reason, but SSP also shows up in other areas like modifications and evaluating options and other parts of the guidance. So it's the importance shouldn't be underestimated because even if you don't have to do much allocation, you still have to use it in other areas from an operational perspective too. You can't just ignore it completely. I'm going to play on one word that you said, and that's an estimate because none of us are fortune tellers. What we're trying to do is estimate what our selling practices are for that good or service. Approximately what price are we selling it? Are we typically giving a 10% discount? Are we typically giving a 50% discount? What is actually going on? And it's separate from the list price. So the list price, it's very rare to have the list price be your SSP. The only time I've typically seen that is if it's something you can order online. Like a self-service model. Right. Or maybe professional services that are just a flat rate. You're taking history to try to extrapolate what your selling might be going forward. Although we have this tool that we're going to talk about, this SSP analysis, there's also other things that need to play in. Is there a change in how you're selling? Is there a special promotion? Is this product end of life? Has something changed? So what we talk about here for the SSP allocation process is a starting point and it's a point of information. But at the end of the day, it may or may not give you the answer. And there may be other things like management's best estimate that has to play into what the ultimate SSP is that you use. You know, that's a great point, Susan. I think you and I have have many fun experiences with a a solid SSP analysis, but taking a step back, you have to think about what are the pricing practices? Where, what is the business strategy? What is the business doing? Do they have a particular go-to-market strategy? I actually do have a client that has a really tight SSP because in most cases, their list price is their selling price. And that is extremely rare. It actually causes problems in other areas for them because they don't have a great basis of comparison on other people in their same situation with such a tight SSP. That's their strategy. That's their brand. That's their go-to-market practice is to have almost a pure price model where this is the price. This is it. There's no negotiating it. In most cases, that's not the case. And 
it's important to not only do an analysis on historical information, but to also look forward at what is the business doing today? Is historical representative of our transactions going forward? Has there been a significant change to the product, to the strategy, to the economic environment that could change the way that the pricing practices are reflected going forward? It's a conversation I know you've probably had, but I've had with auditors because they may be looking for a a certain compliance rate to verify that that's the SSP when in reality, it's just not going to happen, especially for areas where you just don't have a large population of data like professional services. You have to make some kind of estimate. And sometimes that may be looking at history and the trend of what your SSP rates have been. It could be other factors. There is that level of judgment that plays into it. The one thing I kind of want to call out is don't rely 100% on this analysis. It is a tool. It's a very good tool. And in many cases, it does give you a reasonable price, but it is not the end-all be-all answer. And maybe that's a good place to introduce what is standalone selling price? And I think what the guidance with 606 is trying to get at is what would this price be if you were selling this item on a standalone basis? What's the value of this distinct performance obligation on a standalone basis without the context of all the other goods or services in the transaction, without all the negotiated terms? What would you normally sell this for in similar situations to similar customers? There could be an observable list price. That product is consistently sold at that list price that's published on the website. And that that's the case for companies, like you said, that sell things online, don't have a lot of promotions. It's a self-service model. Those aren't the companies that are asking us for help or needing <laughs> to do these analyses, right? And so in a lot of cases, you don't have that data and you have to do some more estimating. Let's talk about the different ways of estimating the value. I mean, one is this SSP analysis that we're going to be talking about probably in depth over a few episodes, but there could be the market adjusted, there could be a cost plus model, and then there's also the residual. When have you seen some of these other ones being used? This SSP analysis we're talking about, ideally that's done on standalone transactions and we have great historical data. If that's not the case, that's when you get bumped into this other world of, okay, we don't have standalone transactions that we can observe what we actually sell this for. We have to come up with this estimate. And I think the market adjusted is what I use most commonly, which maybe it's very similar to the SSP analysis of standalone sales, but maybe we use bundled transactions. Maybe we use bundled transactions along with third-party evidence. Maybe we use bundled transactions and different products by analogy. Maybe you sell perpetual licenses and term licenses, and maybe you use that as part of your analysis. So I think the market-adjusted approach is to say, let's look at all the evidence we have available to us, and let's do the best job we can to come up with something. And I think the market-adjusted approach says, look out into the market and what is the market doing? What is best practice? What is standard? That's actually a really good one when you're introducing new products and services is to look at similar products and services that you're offering and assessing if you're going to be selling them in a similar manner. It can be hard because particularly for certain industries, it's hard to get that information. You know, when you think of 
cars, for example, you can go out and kind of get a sense of what they're selling cars out on the market for. You see what the prices are that are being advertised, what they really actually sell for, you know, you don't know, but you kind of get a sense. For things like software contracts, it's really hard to know what people are going in and negotiating at the end of the day. But, you know, for certain things, you can get that market level data. That reminds me of we were doing an SSP analysis. I think we were looking at professional services or something. The auditors asked us if we had a price list from a competitor that we could use as third-party evidence. But the reality is, even if you have that price list, you don't know what their discounting practices are. I've actually seen the way to get that data is what consultants have we hired? What are we paying these consultants? What are, in general, other professional services, whether it's a solutions architect or an engineer or project manager for software we've purchased? For those, you kind of at least have something, a sense of what's reasonable for professional services out there in the market. And that's actually where I've seen this idea of you know market prices used the most, because it's really hard to compare prices for software. You know, it can be done, but it, it's hard. But professional services, in theory, a lot of these people could be hired at any one of these companies to perform relatively similar tasks. And so that can be a place where you use that. I've seen it also for training. Like if you have online training, it's really easy to go to other websites who have online training similar to yours and see what they're charging. Well, and it also just shows you like, what are people going to be willing to pay? They can come to you, they can negotiate a contract that includes training, or they could go to this third party site and purchase it for XYZ, you know, in a self-service model. There's sort of a, a sense of what is this really worth to a paying customer? The other thing I see used a lot for professional services is, I shouldn't say a lot, I, I see it sometimes, um, is the cost plus model. That and hardware is where I see the cost plus model a lot because there's a very specific cost to it. With software, you don't really have a direct cost that's very easy to allocate or measure. And it quite honestly isn't necessarily the pricing strategy. They certainly want to cover their server costs and everything, but you know they want to extract value from their customers. And so the pricing mechanism may or may not be aligned with the costs. Whereas with professional services, hardware, they're going to cover their costs and, and hopefully get a little bit of margin in most cases. I have actually seen the cost plus model used for software. You have. Tell me more. It was a situation where we had committed to a future feature. So the value of that feature had to be carved out of the selling price. And what they did is they went to engineering and got an assessment of how many hours would be required to build this feature, took that hourly rate plus the benefits, and then they took how many estimated licenses they felt would be purchasing this feature or get the benefit of this feature. And then they backed into a value. That's interesting. That's so cool. And then the last one we were going to talk about is residual, which is somewhat of a holdover from the 605 times. But there are times where I've used it with a client because they were a small client, they had software and they had so many different ways of selling it. So they would sell it along with the professional services, and they would sell it where you would include different modules, but the modules weren't each priced separately, or they'd sell it usage-based. So they had different models of selling. There just simply weren't enough data points because they were so small that the residual method 
made the most sense because in most contracts, they included an estimate of the value of the service to be like 12%. So if they had to renew, they would renew the support services and the maintenance services at 12%. So I at least had a value that I could then back into the software. Well, and it's funny because the residual method was kind of the go-to back under 605 and VSOE days where people couldn't come up with anything because VSOE is based on standalone observable evidence. This idea of estimating SSP was not available for software companies at all. The concept of BESP under 605 came out and I think it was 2013 or 14. Only then could you come up with some sort of estimate to allocate revenue. Before that, it was the residual method in a lot of cases. I know for me anyway, I I, I wanted to hold on to that residual method. <laughs> I wanted to keep using it as much as I could. And I think other people were of the same mindset. It took the auditors kind of pushing back at a few places to be like, no, 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 no. Residual method is not the me- method of before. This is available, but you have to show me you can't do everything else first. You have to try estimating before you come up with the residual. It's no longer choose what you want, choose your own adventure. Like in the circumstance you outlined, it was the best available answer. So that's what they used. I have also used it a couple of times. I, I have been at a few different places where you know there was pushback and it's like, no, no, come on, you can come up with something better. <laughs> but I have used it in a couple of places where it just, there wasn't enough data. There wasn't enough relevant information. Maybe there was information, but the circumstances were too different. You know, the customer type was too different. The circumstances of the contracts, the sizes were too different, where it's just, we can't use this data over here. It just doesn't make sense. The residual data would make a lot more sense where there's very specific, clear, solid SSPs for a certain population of the products or services. And then there's this other products and services where it's like, I don't know. We haven't sold these before. We're not really sure. We don't have data. We don't have historical information. We we really don't have much to go on here. For me, at least, one of the big hints here that you should use it is when you start to get really weird allocation answers if you don't use it. Before we go, here's a review of some of the acronyms used in this episode. SSP, Standalone Selling Price. VSOE is Vendor Specific Objective Evidence. And BESP, sometimes referred to as ESP, is Best Estimated Selling Price. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are available, it's every other Thursday, or hear more about what's going on with the RevRec Gals, please follow us on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to our podcast. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.